Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? I'm well, mate. How are you? Good. It's been a while. We're, we're both really pumped for this one. You especially, because uh, this is a case study on your beloved Canberra Raiders. And who better to talk about the Raiders with than former Canberra Times journalist uh, and then Raiders media manager, Bevan Hannon. Uh, we're thrilled to have you, Bevan. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be with you, fellas. I'm uh, really looking forward to it. Welcome. I was very familiar with your work, Bevan, uh, having you know embarked on this research project. It seems like just about every article written about the Raiders in the early mid-90s was written by you. Uh, I, I just want to get a bit of background on how you got there and, and your history with the Raiders. So do you want to talk a bit about you know the Raiders, your history with Canberra and the team? Yeah, sure thing. Well, I'm actually a born and bred Canberran. Um, and the Raiders were a real family focal point for me growing up in the 80s. I've got really wonderful memories of um, uh, with my dad and my mates watching the Green Machine as a kid out at Seaford Oval in Queanbeyan where they started out, and, and, and the trips that we made, the pilgrimages to Sydney to take on the, on the, the big Sydney teams. It was always a, always a thrill. Um, I'd actually started following league uh, before the Raiders started in 82, um, and I do remember taking a sickie in 78 on a Tuesday when uh, there was a grand final replay, and... Um, I can still remember Steve Rogers trudging back to the to the restarts when they were getting done by Manly. But I was, in fact, an Eastman. And the, uh, and one of the reasons was, um, uh, which, which that became really ingrained, because Noel Cleal joined the Roosters in 1980. And uh, he came from uh, a town called Scone, um, where one side of my family's from, uh, in the Hunter region of New South Wales. And uh, I'd seen the Crusher play in the, fresh, in the flesh up there uh, for the Thoroughbreds. And, uh, and I'd already uh, had a liking for East, and that ingrained my following. There was also a scone uh, connection with the Raiders' first team, uh, a guy called Mick Tills. Um, he played front row in that first game, and uh, and you guys might remember his son Dane mm. played a, a couple of hundred first grade games for the for the Raiders a bit later on. Yeah, we um, uh, we went to most Raiders games uh, out at out at Seaford, um, and it was such a great place to watch the footy. Um, you know. It, you were so close to the action, and when there was a big game on, there was a big crowd. The joint was just heaving, and uh, and they must have felt like supermen. Um, that's what I thought at the time. Um, in my first year at, at uh, high school, Neil Henry, who went on obviously to coach the club and uh, and do other great things in rugby league, he was earning his teaching stripes, and I, I recognised Slippers as being one of the uh, lower graders, and so. Um, he got a poster signed for me uh, from all the players, which took pride of place in my room for years. And um, they were just great days out there having those those big Sydney teams come down here and play. I remember one of my birthdays, Manly, were here um, on a wet Saturday Arvo. And, you know, there was Krillich and Boyd and Bostead. And even I think John Rebo might have been on the sting that day. And it was just <laughs> it was great. It was just great to have uh, those teams playing here and a team, a local team that was actually sticking it to them. 
Um, and, and the players like Jay Hoffman, Ashley Gilbert, some of those originals, and Steve O'Callaghan, John Hardy, they were, you know, they played with such heart and, uh, and, and it was, you know, just great to see the way they grew as a team. But, but back in those days, it wasn't just the team you followed, it was the club. You know, there were three grades and, you know, when you went out to watch them play, you go and see all three grades. And at Seaford, the, when the players walked out onto the ground or ran out onto the ground, uh, the, walk, the players raced, um, uh, they had to close the gates on either side. There was a, a wide gates which uh, created that players' race tunnel, um, which went across the main walkway in front of the grandstand. And there was always a surge to get your hands on the wires of that race, and you'd be, you know, urging on your team and uh, and, and sticking it to the visitors. And um, yeah, it was a just a real buzz to watch footy and uh, and a great place. And um, probably the 1984 season sticks out of my memory. The most that team was really really special to me. They went to within um, a game of making the finals. They made a playoff, and uh, and uh, yeah, to, to do that within three years of um, starting out the comp was was quite an achievement. And it seems in in that that early years, those early years, there's a real sense of kind of hometown heroes and and Canberra or, or the region as like this kind of local team, which is quite different to the the dream team that the you know huge success of of the nineties. Uh, are there any differences that you remember from watching that the team in those early days? Look, the, um, the there was a Raiders way, you know, like like they could always score tries. Um, um, I, I remember, you know, that that team of nineteen eighty four, which is really special to me. Um, you know, like I bet Andy, you've got your favourite. You got your favourite calls from the nineties from Rabs, have you? What, but you could roll them off to me. Your favourite tries. Well, the Brett Mowens ones are always my favourites, but. <laughs> Yeah, I thought I thought you'd say that, and and, and for me, you know, my favourites, and maybe it's because you're looking through the eyes of a kid. Um, there, there was a in 1984, my old team, the Roosters, came to to play the Raiders, and I think it was our very first like Sunday big game telecast, you know, the Channel 10 big game, and um, uh, you know, they've been on the telly for the midweek games and the uh, you know, the KB Cup and for maybe the Saturday afternoon ABC game, but they hadn't had the top billing before, and the Roosters came down, and you know, my. My all-time favourite Rabs called one of those tries. It was from deep inside the Raiders' half. And um, Paul Elliott, who was a ball-playing back rower, he was involved, but it went through the back line. Sullivan, Henjack, uh, Craig Bellamy was there, and then it was finished off by Terry Fay, Terry Fay, flying Terry Fay. And, um, and going back home that night to, to, to see it on the telly when that scored 40 points and hearing the you know, Rabbit's call have just added a little bit of extra magic dust on the whole thing. But my, my probably... Two of the most, one of the most significant parts of that period was that was the wins that they had in successive years in '83 and '84 over Parramatta. You know, Parramatta were the team; they won three premierships in a row, and you know they came down to the to Seaford twice and got mugged by um, by the Raiders side. And um, you know, David Grant was massive in both of those wins. Um, you know, another great Rabs call. He, he uh, David Grant. Um, scored a decisive try in that 1984 game, and Rabs said that he took off like Moss Trooper. <laughs> yeah, legendary, legendary old um, uh, jump source, and uh, and he did. He dived. He launched himself out of that Eels defence to score. And Ronnie Giddo was the captain that day, um, and he'd had a lot of experience sort of playing with East and West in the in the Sydney Cop. And he always said to me that David Grant never got the credit he deserved for what he did in those in those formative days. Um, you know, Gitz described him as the as the head of the snake, who the other teams had to shut down first, and. Um, you know, they were great memories of what he did and what those boys did then. And I, and I, I, I may be able to confirm it, but I, I reckon I've still got a souvenir from that um, that second Parramatta win where, you know, in those days you run out in the field after the game and I think I might have grabbed one of the 
the old flags behind the dead ball area on a wooden stake just as a, as a little souvenir um, of that occasion. It was a really exciting day. That's awesome. And I've got to say, it reminds me of when the Knights come into the comp up here and you're sort of supporting this, this club that you're not really looking for the grand final. All you want is, is the visiting teams to know they've had a game, you know? And like, there's something special about the formative views of, the, of a club. Yeah, there's, there's no question. Look, and look, one of the other things that sticks out in the early 80s for me is actually when we went to visit, you know, some of the, the Sydney clubs. And uh, um, I remember going to Redfern Oval in the early 80s and um, I can still see Mario Fennick revving up uh, uh, the Rabbitohs. They were warming up in a little park outside of Redfern, Redfern Oval and um, went inside the ground. But my other vivid memory that day was my dad talking out the corner of his mouth and saying, get that beanie off, get that beanie off. And because uh, one of the locals had decided to to use that as a bit of an ashtray during the first half. And so <laughs> I, had, I had to get it off quick smart. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, this is another piece of connective tissue between East and the Raiders, a man who coached both of them, uh, Don Ferner. Could you put into words what he did for the club and, and the role he played in getting them to where they got to in the 90s? Yeah, look, Donnie Ferner was was great, you know. Um, I think, you know, Gus Gould gets a bit of stick about the old Penrith five-year plan, but that's that's what, um you know, Donnie Ferner Sr. had um, when the Raiders first came in. He, he always said that, you know, they'd need five years to be competitive and, you know, like he delivered in spades when you consider that 84 team that went within a, a, you know, a breath of making the finals and then in 87 they made the, made the, um, made the grand final. You, you, they couldn't have laid better foundations with what he, what he had to work with because... Um, you know, he was a great leader for the club. Um, he was so well respected. Um, he came across as a father figure, really, because he was just patiently, you know, raising up his sire and, and instilling confidence in them. And uh, and his experience was really important. You're right. He coached that. He got Arthur Beats into the Roosters. Um, he uh, you know, got them to a grand final in the early seventies. And uh, I think John Quayle might have been a part of that that Rooster side back in that era. Um, but but either side of that. Um, Donnie Ferner, he had a phenomenal record coaching the Queanbeyan Blues, uh, you know, down here in the Group 8 comp. He, you know, won 10 premierships or something in 13 years. And, um, you know, when the Raiders started, I mean, you know, four, I think they had four wins in the premiership in the first year. They had a KD Cup win as well from memory, but, um, you know, four wins in the premiership. And then in 83, they went to, went to nine. Um, and then, you know, on the verge of the finals in 84. Uh, and what was remarkable, uh, remarkable about that was, the constraints that they were working in because it was the 13 import rule, which had been in place since the mid seventies. Um, and uh, what it meant, the league's conditions were you had to have three teams, you had to have three grades. So you're talking 55 players. And and so it's a big call. You can only bring in 13. You're relying on 42 from your local league. And uh, even Jack Gibson, he said, you know, back then at that time that, you know, the league needed to do something about the 13 import rule just to help make those new sides Canberra and Illawarra more competitive, you know, and um, uh, that's always been a bit of a point of contention uh, down here and with the and with the Raiders about um, how that went down uh, in comparison to you know what happened when Cronulla and Penrith started, for example. You know, they didn't have that same handicap. So, um, but yeah, but Donny was uh, yeah was was really really important in um, in those early years. He, he laid a great foundation and some parallels there with bringing Arthur Beetson in to the Roosters, inspiring them to great success, doing the same with Mal Meninga in 85, I think it was his first year, wasn't it? 85 or 86. Um, but what what, yeah. are your, what are your early memories of Mal coming to the Raiders? Yeah, look, that, you're right about 
uh, Big Mal. Look, that was that was '86 that that he came and um, uh, you know that was a you know that was a real catalyst. You know, it was a, a huge turning point for the club. Um, you know, it, it drew other quality players at the same time. You know, uh, Gary Belcher came down at the same time. Gary Coyne, uh, Steve Walters was a, just a he was sort of coming through then. But um, you know, just some some really good players sort of came with him, and then Peter Jackson sort of followed uh, a year later. Um, yeah, look, it was really important because after 84, 85, they sort of, they had a bit of a dip, um, you know, they had a good start and then, and then faded. Um, they don't like to call them the faders, but they, they did that year. And, um, the only really bright spot, I think in 85 was, um, uh, they got to the grand final reserve grade and, and St. George tipped them out in the last seconds of that, uh, of that game. Um, but 86, you know, Mallard arrived and it didn't quite live up to the promise, um, um, and they, you know, they weren't, they didn't make a lot of progress that year. And, um, and this is where sort of Mal's presence came in a bit more beyond just being a player draw card, I guess. Um, uh, Donnie Ferner, he was made the Australian coach that year. Um, uh, but there were loud whispers around town that, um, McMahon who coached that reserve grade side was pushing for a takeover. Um, and there'd been a, you know, a bit of conjecture about the players complaining the training was getting a bit stale and, um, you know, they needed to do something else. And, you know, the Raiders were known in those early days, they were known for the the mad hour, um, that, a, that a, a, a trainer called Brian Burke, he was a, an old Queanbeyan Blues legend. There's a statue of him actually in the Queanbeyan Leagues Club uh, foyer um, from his playing days. And, and he was he was infamous for you know, his tough uh, training sessions. Uh, but with, with Meninga and you know, Belcher coming down, they had links to Brisbane and that sort of had exposure to, to Wayne Bennett. And so... While there was you know, this this uh, conjecture around the place about you know what they need to do, um, uh, it actually opened the way for you know them to sort of push Bennett's cause a bit. And club boss John McIntyre, I think that's when he hatched the plan to, to bring Bennett down as a co-coach, um, uh, and for a, you know for a, you know a change of the guard, uh, but to work together as a combo. And you know it, it worked a treat. You know, you know history shows at '87, you know Canberra became the first non-Sydney team to make the grand final. Um, and that and that duo, you know, won the, the, the coach of the year. Um, now the succession plan was sort of scuppered a bit, I guess, because the Broncos ended up pinching uh, Bennett back. But um, I have to say this, um, and I've got really vivid memories of this: that the impact that Bennett had in that short time. I know Timmy Sheens came in, and you know he did a, a wonderful job uh, in that golden era, coaching the coaching the club. But the impact that Bennett had in that short time. Um, you know, like it was, it was very, very clear and it flowed right throughout the district, right throughout the grades. Um, you know, Meninga and, and, and Belsha, you know, knew about the, the emphasis he placed on skills coaching and, you know, coaching under pressure skills. Um, and, and even, and Donnie Ferner had said that, you know, a new voice, um, you know, to help bring that discipline to the, the, the defence they needed to uptick in that area was important. But it was much more than that, the influence. His, his modern coaching ideals he really took the coaching director role very seriously. And so he set up this um, uh, coaching panel, um, uh, which he which he overlooked to, to really have a big focus on coaching. And there was a um, the guy who'd been doing a lot of the development work for, for, for Canberra in the, in the 80s, uh, in their formative years, was a, was a fellow by the name of Steve Hewson. And uh, uh, he, he's, uh, they called him Shovels from an injury he had when he was, when he was playing. But he was, you know, one of the, the great prospects to come out of Queanbeyan uh, and the area who injury basically curtailed his career. He, he played for, for country in 75 and the team that beat City. Um, he played for New South Wales that year. And, uh, and I think he was offered by Manly. Um, he wanted to lure him into the big smoke. Uh, but he came back and he, he pretty much straight away did two bad knee injuries in a row. Um, and, it, and it was the end of his career. So 
um, uh, he ended up staying in the area and uh, got involved with the Raiders um, you know, in development. And uh, he did an exceptional job. But I still remember him talking about, you know, the, um, the, the rapid growth that occurred um, following the Bennett effect, basically. Um, the, the panel that he oversaw, um, it was about, you know, instilling the Raiders way, you know, th- through the whole coaching system, through the juniors. Um, he set up a youth squad um, and Bradley Clyde was part of that first one, I'm pretty sure. Um, and, and that meant that, you know, our best juniors were exposed to elite coaching in the facilities at the AIS, um, which we had. And, you know, that emphasis, you know, breathed this fresh outlook and um, uh, it, had a, it had a real impact. And I also remember Craig Bellamy was one of the, the handful of people who did their level two coaching certificates that year. Not many get through on their level two and uh, that was a sign of things to come for him. Um, but, you know, the junior coaches across the, the region ate it up and uh, it really did help build, um, you know, you know, a strong – well, built on the, the, the strong foundation was there, took it to another level and really did um, set it up for, um, you know, the era that was to come. And, uh, um, you know, it, as I said, it was it was noticed right throughout the region, you know, that effect in that short time that Bennett had had. It's a, it's a major trope in this podcast, the uh, sliding doors moments in rugby league, but like the Alan McMahon, Wayne Bennett trade-off um, – Seven Knights got McMahon and, um, you know, we were solid. But, you know, if, if that would happen in Canberra, who knows where we would be now? Yeah, no, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few of those. There's a few of those. I know you like your sliding doors, but, yeah. it's um, um, But, you know, if, if Mal, you know, hadn't have come down, you know, would that have happened? You know, would would the Bennett thing have happened? I don't know. But um, but it did and it was certainly, a, you know, an important part of the, the Raiders' history. And then... Coming on off the back of that, so you've you've laid your foundation, you've added to the the foundation with what Bennett did. Then you have this all time crop of young blokes coming through. You mentioned Clyde, you know Stewart comes over from Rugby Union. Laurie Daly comes through. This this is also the time when you're getting started as a journalist. So can you maybe talk about uh, some of your early experiences following the team in a professional capacity? Yeah, well, it started following it as a hobby, to tell you the truth, um, and it just then it turned into a job. So, so um, I suppose the, the the Potter backstory is, you know, I was pretty lucky to have a few really good rugby league men um, who just, you know, took an interest in what I was doing and gave me some opportunities, and it and it basically led to led to work, I guess. And um, it started by being a bit of a prize pig on a on a Sunday morning radio show. Um, the, the then ACT Rugby League they ran the local comp, and their PR man. Uh, Lee Donnelly had this radio show and he got, I think he got sick of me ringing in and winning the competitions, the quiz. <laughs> um, uh, and I was, I was 13 at the time and uh, he said, come in. And uh, he basically got me to start doing uh, reports on, on Junior League then. And uh, that led to writing for the Raider magazine, which was the, the organ for the club. Um, then I also got to be doing stuff for the Canberra Times, um, you know, while I was going through uh, high school, um, yeah, basically doing junior and local league reporting. And, and so... Um, yeah, so even in those days, I guess, you know, when I'm sort of doing it as a hobby, but, you know, it's still getting, you know, uh, you know quite a bit of exposure. You know, the whole club, very accessible, every level, whether it was administrators to the players. Uh, and the thing that always struck me was there was always a level head in the joint, you know, like, you know, they worked really hard to keep each other grounded. Uh, they had some really good leaders who had um, pride in their club. Um, Dean Lance was a standout for me. Um, he, he played 5-8 in that first uh, um First win Canberra had, but he was on the playing five eight for Newtown, and um, um, and then he joined Canberra two years later, and uh, and he made the tra- transition to the back row from the backs, and he just set high standards and everything that he did, and gave his all and played above his weight, and he was everything what the Raiders were about, 
um, really well respected, uh, really good to deal with. And he captained Canberra so well on and off the field uh, in that charge to that 87 grand final. Um, but then, you know, then on the love of the road, you know, like um, uh, Terry Regan, you know, like, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's the one that Matty Johns credits as being the yeah. inspiration for Reg yeah, Regan. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like he was—he was again another one who played, you know, uh, above his weight here, um, wherever he went, really. But he was up for anything. He, he, there was one year that um, a local um, A grader wanted to have a fight with him, and they so they they jumped in the ring for a five hundred dollar purse. And um, you know, he, uh, you know, they were working back then. Just remember, they were working back then, and um, you know, they got normal jobs and they're training at night, and um, and you're having to you know track them down to do stories and. You know, even someone like Terry Regan, you know, like uh, he was doing a trash fuck business at the time, I remember, and he, um, um, uh, you know, he'd, he'd ring you back at the arranged time and, you know, you'd have when he finished his trash fuck run, he'd have a yarn and um, he always made me laugh, but there was always a bit of a serious side to him as well. You know, like it wasn't all, it wasn't all, um, uh, yeah, it wasn't all joking around or or the mug lair. He was, um, you know, like there was one story I remember I, I did with him was all about headgear, wearing headgear, and he didn't want, um, you know, the kids to think there was a stigma with uh, with wearing that. So, so that was pretty cool. But look, I did a lot of interviews with um, uh, with with the, with the kids coming through um, and uh, coaches coming through. So the likes of Laurie Daly, you know, I did interviews with him when he was first came from June E when he was uh, playing Jersey Flag before he went into grade. So I was able to build a lot of relationships and contacts in that time. And, you know, whether it was a rookie Raider or um, the coaches, both Johnny Ferner and Wayne Bennett um, or Mal even, um, all all personable, all accommodating. And, uh, yeah, it was a really, really, um, yeah, very fortunate and, were, and very generous with their time. Well, I have to ask you about one man that may or may not be accommodating. Bevan uh, is uh, one R. Stewart. How is he to deal with? Yeah, look, um, I formed a pretty good relationship with uh, with Ricky. I've got to say, um, um, I actually used to ghost his column, so you know that always helps. Oh, really? That's unreal. And um, he, uh, there's a book that I heard you, you boys talking about that you didn't mind. I know you're not a big fan of the, the biographies, but um, he, um, the Alfie Langer one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ricky, Ricky did the forward for that, um, and that may may have involved me drafting that for him. Um, uh, but yes, yeah, so I had a fair bit to do with him. He was always straight. Um, 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 yeah, he was always yeah, really straight. I mean, he could get cranky at times, but um, <laughs> but but he was he was he was always straight and honest to deal with. And um, um, yeah, no, I, I got on on very well with uh, very well with him, and I, I found him pretty good to deal with. I think I think the day that everyone thought he was his crankiest. Um, was when he was at the in the crosshairs of the ARL um, Super League uh, offering around that um, April Fool's Day time of '95. Um, that was you know he was under immense pressure. I think that's where everyone said they saw him at his crankiest. Um, but uh, yeah, he was he was he was yeah really 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 good to deal with. And look, he, he was also um, it was almost like he was he was he was born to not just um, lead the club, but he, he was born to coach. His old man was a was a pretty was a pretty you know handy local player and had won some uh, at least one competition down here um, uh, and uh, he actually his old man actually coached the Raiders first semi final team and that was um eighty uh, three I think that was uh, the SG ball team Ricky was in it in it and they uh, they got to the finals but um Ricky and the other uh, gun they had in the forwards uh, were both at St Edmunds College a rugby school and they had a, a clash with an important rugby game on the same day and. Uh, um, and rugby won out, and so uh, they had to stand down from uh, the Raiders semi-final. They got touched up in that uh, by the Eels, but um, uh, yeah, his, his dad uh, definitely has some coaching genes in him, and uh, certainly passed on to Ricky. 
Well, I remember reading his book or, or one of the books, and he was speaking about his father, and you can just uh, you can see that his his father was a, a real down to earth guy, and he sort of I don't know he had immense respect for him, obviously, but uh, he hasn't sort of adopted those traits himself some of the times. You know, like, I think he'd, I think he'd like to be more like his father sometimes. Yeah, look, at it. I, have to, I have to say though, he's um, what he's what he's done, you know, since coming back, you know, to coach and. Um, you know where the Raiders have come in that time and what they've done to you know to rebuild a sort of and get back get back a bit to you know what they had in the past in those golden days has been you know has been pretty important and uh, you know it's it's a yeah, very yeah. very different feel around town now to you know what it was um, you know for for a period when you know when they were sort of in the wilderness a bit. Well, I mean, I'm sure Michael was going to get to it anyway, but I mean, there's probably no one else that could have, could have done it the way he's done it in the last few years. I mean, it was a proper build, proper spirit. You know, camaraderie, the whole thing, and you know, it just fits. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, and look at my sliding doors moment. You know, to, to throw into that mix, and you know, um, was you know what would have happened if, um, and, and so you know, after after Mal had, had had his his crack at the coaching, you know, they had a handover, a transition there as well, where they went with Matt Elliott, and uh, you know, that was down to down to two, um, and uh, and the second person in the running there was was Craig Bellamy. He'd, Sort of, uh, you know, again, he was one of the, you know, you know, really wholehearted, hard trainers. You know, was just so, um, you know, so valuable to that uh, group of men who were part of those uh, original Raiders and had come through and had done an apprenticeship uh, coaching, had gone to, uh, you know, to be uh, Wayne Bennett's right hand man, and he was in the, you know, he was in the running there in the early two thousands to take over from Mal. And you know, my memory was it was between Elliot and Bellamy, and um, you know, what if they had have gone with uh, with Bellamy? Would have been, <laughs> yeah. I want to stay in the in the glory years uh, for a little bit because um, it's something Andrew and I talk about on air and off air constantly. Is is that Raiders team? We're both, uh, you know, we, we were raised by that team basically. So I, I want uh, to start with Grand Final Day, nineteen eighty nine. Can you talk me through your day? Yeah, Grand Final Day eighty nine. Yeah, so um, I was. Um, uh, actually, at the at the game, I wasn't working that day. So '89. Um, so I was a year before starting permanently at the uh, at the Canberra Times, and so I'd been doing radio and other stringing work, and uh, I'd actually been working at a place called um, uh, West Belconnell Leagues Club. Uh, Ian, Hen- uh, sorry, Neil Henry's father, Ian, uh, as I was sort of getting to the end of year twelve, had um, offered me a start doing a, a traineeship there in sort of sports admin, and I was doing that and combining the the media stuff and. Um, and so um, uh, when it came to grand final day, I wasn't actually working. So I was actually seated there um, uh, yeah, with, the, uh, with my dad and some friends. And um, we were sort of in that corner uh, or towards that corner where Chica Ferguson scored that late try, to, 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 which helped set up extra time. And we actually had in our group, there was a bright yellow uh, cardboard sign with the word all right on it. And it comes up in the, in the footage when you replay after some of the, after, after the tries, well, that's exactly where we were. And, um, you know, that was just a magical time for Canberra, the run up to the grand final, the pride that swelled. We'd had a practice run in 87, but you know, this was, you know, a real, when you were a real crack at being the first non-Sydney team to win it. And, um, uh, one of my good mates uh, and I, we had a bit of extra cheer because, um, we'd actually backed the Raiders to win the grand final earlier in the year at 16 to one. Wow. And, yeah, and so we'd had—I don't know where we got the, the money from, but uh, but we had a hundred dollars each on it, huh. um, and so it was more money than than a couple of eighteen-year-olds had ever seen back then. And uh, yeah, so that gave us a bit of extra, 
extra uh, volume in the voice. And um, Angel Marina, um, he was one of the Raiders originals. Um, he actually, you know, one of his big games that he played back in 82, he, he got a hat-trick when, um, when they beat St. George down here. Um, he was sitting in the same bay. Um, uh, I remember the, you know, I remember the victory lap because uh, uh, Bradley Clyde, he'd actually grown up uh, in the same area as us and we knew him quite well uh, and he'd stopped on the victory lap uh, and my mate um, sort of had his, had a, had, a, had a plastic cup of beer and Clyde took a bit of a swig out of it in pure elation and um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was just, just a magic day. The, um, the interesting little quirky story to it, I guess, um, um, is Victor the Viking. Um, and yeah, no one's usually interested when I tell this, but I think you blokes won't mind it. Um, we certainly are. Um, so Tony Wood was the original Victor the Viking, and uh, and and he still is. Like he's still doing it now. Like he started doing it. Whether it was '83 was the first year, but it was very early in the piece. And he's still doing it now. He's a life member. He's a brilliant bloke, and he's just been a. He's given great service to the club. He, you know, he turns up to promotions and does all sorts of stuff. If there's an event on, Victor turns up, and you you see Tony's there underneath the underneath the. The, um, the costume. But the thing is, he's a, a big Queanbeyan man and um, uh, he wasn't happy about them moving um, moving to Bruce Stadium in 1990. And so when that was all on in 89, he stopped being Victor. And so um, his place was taken by, what would you call, a colourful racing identity, you'd, you'd probably call him, um, uh, who would... Um, <laughs> He would later go on, and so I digress for a moment. This guy, he later went on. He was the mascot for the New South Wales Origin team that, that, that had a cockroach, Bluey or something they called it. And um, <laughs> he made headlines. He made headlines um, uh, into the 90s because um, he was up on some some sort of fraud charges, and he was throwing up all these excuses, um, you know, not to attend court. Like you know, his mum had died, and she hadn't, and you know, he showed up in colostomy bags and all sorts of things to try and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, not um not 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 have to face the music, but uh anyway that's a side story. But um the thing was that uh um in '89 I do remember there was a complaint from one of the players, and I forget who it was, but they it was on match day, and you know they were trying to get a massage, you know, uh, before the start of the game, or get a bit of tightness out of one of the muscles, and they were trying to get on the rub down table, and there's bloody Victor um, getting a rub down, <laughs> loosening, loosening up his routine, and they. And they and they they said to me, "What's going on here? You know, like it's that's not a day's bar, you know." And um, so it goes without saying that um, uh, you know after after the grand finals, it was it was a bit of a travesty that, that Tony didn't get to do that. Um, but but um, but John McIntyre did talk him to come back uh, come back into the role in nineteen ninety, and uh, yeah, he was there for when they moved to Bruce Stadium, and he's been doing it ever since. But yeah, that's the, probably the one missing bit of. Um, yeah, that 89 grand final that I would have liked to have seen to make it perfect. <laughs> I've got to say, though, mate, it's uh, very rugby league to have the mascot boycotting over a, a personal feud. It's, it's very, very rugby league. Well, and, and and I'm pretty sure that the reason he became a mascot was he was actually mates with Mark and Magpie, and he thought, oh, I can do this, and so he started doing it down here. So, yeah. Moving on to that rest of the run in the 90s, you timed your run perfectly to be starting at the Canberra Times at a time when the Raiders were you know, everything in terms of rugby league. Uh, can you put into words what was special about that team or, or why they were as good as they were? Yeah, look, it was um, it was the way they went about their, their footy, um, you know, like, and while, you know, 
Well, winning's important, you know, like when you're following a team, I suppose it's about the connection as well. And, you know, they, the community really felt that they were part of it, you know, and, and, and they were, they were sort of, you know, living and working, you know, and many of them had, you know, day, you know, day jobs, whether it was, you know, Chick at Ferguson at Warmold or, you know, wherever they were, you know, they all, you know, they all had a place in the, in the community and, um, you know, they loved it. They loved the way they played the game. Um, they loved the way they represented the club and, uh, and then just, you know, what they did uh, to go on that run in 89 um, to, you know, to make the, you know, to make the grand final, let alone, let alone win it. Um, it was, it was um, just such a special time, but it was a combination of all, you know, things because you, you had a combination of the, the players who'd been there from day one, um, you know, who'd done the hard yards and were there, you know, that had some acquisitions, you know, who'd added to that, um, you know, over the years to, you know, put some steel into them and, you know, then the Queenslanders. And then there was a whole bunch of juniors which came through at the same time. Um, and it was just, you know, an, an incredible team. And, um, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, yeah, they were, they were certainly the biggest show in town and, um, you know, pretty much the biggest show in rugby league in the end. Though, if, if, if people didn't like them, they were certainly their second team. Well, it's almost Melbourne Storm-esque that the fact that they reinvented themselves from the 87 era to the 89-90-91 era and then to the 93-94 era. Like there's three different distinct teams there it's, uh, and they all had their, their pluses. But that, that 89 to 91 era, like guys like Mark Bell and Paul Martin and, and these unsung sort of guys, I, like, I really love that aspect of it. Yeah. Well, I remember before the 87 grand final, one of the things I did in grand final week was I rang Ron Casey. Um, uh, Ron Casey had his you know, talkback show on Sydney Radio at the time, and uh, I had a period off at school, and I um, I rang him because uh, you know he was one of the big critics of the Raiders when they started off, and uh, was always on their back, and you know I just wanted to give them a bit of a call to say you know what do you got to say now, and uh, I still got a bit of ear bashing and called me Wally, and <laughs> but I, I still I still enjoyed it, and uh, um, you know there was this wave of enthusiasm and, and this unprecedented excitement that the the um, you know. Again, the the traffic that went up and down the the highway to go to all the semi final games, um, you know those you know those cafes and some of those stopover points before all the bypasses happened, you know would have made a, a squeeze out of petrol stops and cafe stops from all the Raiders fans. Um, in '87, um, I actually I was doing a little bit of refereeing then, and one of the semi finals um, when they played South, um, I was doing one of the junior games um, at the cricket ground, sort of either I think it was before the game or half time. And uh, um, I do remember actually poor Steve Maven passing me as uh, as he was leaving after being tormented by the Raiders kicking game that day and when they blitzed blitzed South out of the comp. Um, but one of, one of the things the Raiders did in that 87 that they never did again was they actually had a street parade before they got to the big one. They had all the, the players in, you know, open top classic cars and they did this big parade through uh, through the streets of Queenie and Canberra and... Um, uh, because you know everyone wanted a piece of them, and they you know they they decided to um, you know you know to meet that um you know meet that excitement. But um, uh, yeah, they never actually did a did a pre um, a pre grand final event again. Um, but I was I was in year eleven at the time then, and you talk about those unsung heroes. And like the start of the year in '87, their two frontline wingers were John Ferguson and Terry Fay, and they didn't make it to grand final day in '87 because uh, of because uh, of injury, and, and Terry Fay had to retire. Um, and so the two the two wingers were were Chris Keener and Matt Corkery, um, and uh, and they came to our school that um, that week in Grand Final week to get a big presentation for school. The whole place was decked out in green, 
um, and everyone just wanted to, you know, just wish them well and and celebrate, you know, the big achievement with them. And that was sort of what was happening all around the place because everyone had some sort of some sort of uh, some sort of connection, and um, you know, and, and it showed what they, you know, those, you know, through the injuries and stuff they had, what they overcame to to get where they did that year. Of course, Mal was out for a, for a long period of time um, because he, you know, he smashed his arm into the goalpost to see and uh, he didn't come back until the preliminary final. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, so I actually recall watching that grand final from the hill um, at the creek ground and uh, it was a bloody hot day sitting in the sun there and uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like for the, for the players who were, were in the big one. Uh, Andrew's mentioned the, you know, the rebuilding of the team over the years in the three different eras. The third of those eras was necessitated in many ways because of the the money problems and the salary cap dramas of the early nineties. Uh, what are your memories of of those troubles? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was pretty. Uh, you know, that was a thing with with covering covering the Raiders and particularly you know when I was actually in the you know working in the mainstream media was um, you know they were the biggest story and in you know like in. In 1990, they were at their absolute peak. You know, in 1990, um, you know, after winning in, in 89, um, you know, they 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 won everything in front of them that year. They won the preseason challenge. Um, they stormed into the grand final. They were in three grades that year. Uh, three, you know, all three grades made the grand final. They won. They won first grade. They won the the um, president's cup and um, and reserve grade. Got tipped out in a um, in extra time by the Broncos, and uh, you know, so you know they were at their absolute peak in in 1990, um, and then uh, you know 91 comes around, and um, you know the drama starts, and uh, you know with the Raiders from that you know from that time on, not only were they a big story, but there was always you know always always a bit of drama, and you know um, I suppose there are there are a couple of things with it that converged. Um, definitely a couple of things that converged. The first was, you know, they 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 were under pressure because they were trying to expand. Um, you know, there was an opportunity there for them because you know the the the, the football team had been you know so successful. Um, but you know, with that, you know, came some pressures, I guess, and um, uh, and they were trying to expand. Um, and in trying to expand, they stretched themselves a bit, um, and that resulted in them, um, you know, getting six million dollars in debt. Um, and so, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, a, a big problem for them because, um, at the same time, um, you know, you, you had the, the salary, the salary cap, uh, introduced and, uh, um, you know, they were, they were caught out with a, with a, from a salary cap breach in, in 1990 and a potential one in 91. Um, the, the, some of the history there, I guess, was, was with crowds. So, you know, this is not the be all and end all, but it just gives you an indication when they were first in, in 82, you know the crowds that they were getting at Seaford were, I don't, not quite eleven thousand, but up there, up, up close to eleven thousand. And, and I think, you know, it was only you know your Parramatta's and Canterbury's and Manly's who were, were sort of getting better crowds at the time. When they made the made the grand final in '89, playing out of Seaford, the average crowd was was, was less than ten thousand. Um, so you know, in that period, you know, they just weren't getting the the uptick in crowds that you'd need, and so. Um, you know, so, so the move to Bruce Stadium was another important thing. Um, you know, they you know, potentially could get bigger crowds. They had more corporate facilities to sell. Um, and, uh, and, and Bruce was always flagged as a potential, you know, home alternative um, in its original submission, um, uh, you know, back in 1981 to the league. And, and that was proven 
a proof of right to, to, to go to Bruce because they went from that, you know, less than 10,000 in 89 to, you know, uh, probably between 13 and 14,000 average in, in 1990. But, you know, they were under pressure to create more revenue um, plus the, um, you know, and to expand. And so they looked at a, a redevelopment of the Raiders Leagues Club in a suburb called Mawson. Uh, they had the, the Raiders Nightclub was another thing where they were trying to get extra people through the Queenie Leagues Club, which had a lot of bands and stuff going there. A lot of, you know, your, you know, mental as anything and the like would come there every Thursday or Saturday night. And, um, you know, it just all put a strain on the finances. And then that was, you know, compounded by the, the salary cap situation, which put them under the microscope. And, um, you know, where that came into play was, you know, there was, in 1990, I think it was about 85, around 85,000 that they overspent the cap and, you know, back then, you know, the cap was about 1.5 million, and then in uh, in the in unearthing that, um, you know, in '91 they were heading for a hundred thousand dollar overspend, and so they needed to do something to rectify that. So you know, all the players, you know, had to take pay cuts, 15 percent pay cuts, to keep them, you know, um, uh, to stop them from overspending. So I mean, all the contracts were all null and void, and they had to start again. And you know, they lost a whole bunch of players at the end of. Um, 91. Um, the fact they got to the grand final amid, uh, amidst all the drama was incredible. Um, they were playing busted, all these distractions, you know, um, all the contractual situation, the club future being questioned. Um, you know, the fact that they actually got to a third grand final um, was, you know, yeah, was was quite unbelievable. Um, the community rallied behind them. Um, you know, the community raised a couple hundred thousand bucks, um, which underlined you know, how popular they were and that they wanted to, you know, they wanted this team to be representing the, the region and um, uh, Fred Daly, he actually, um, you know, was one of the faces of that. He was the, the Raiders' original uh, co-patron with another Labor Party figure, Ros Kelly, um, you know, and they actually did the original pitch, um, you know, to the New South Wales League, you know, back in 81 before they come to the comp. So they were, you know, long-term supporters of the club and, uh, you know, were you know, working with local businessmen to, to rally around. But um, it was a really uncertain time. Um, um, and that two hundred thousand dollars that the punters raised eventually, um, because I think the league said, "Look, um, your your salary cap's going to be reduced as a result of this," and they used that two hundred grand to to top back up for the for the next year back to the one point five million, so they weren't disadvantaged. But it, but it cost you know it cost administrators their jobs. It cost um, you know Chairman Jim Woodger, who was involved with the original sponsorship uh, or you know, the first major sponsorship that the club had. Uh, he was chairman and. He, um, you know, he uh, he resigned uh, or handed over, relinquished that position. And John McIntyre, um, who was the CEO equivalent, um, you know, lost his position as well. Um, but the, the turning point was Bernie Fraser, who was an ex-local league player, but more importantly, he was the Reserve Bank Governor. Uh, um, and, um, uh, you know, his experience as a Reserve Bank Governor basically gave credibility back to the um, uh, to the organisation just to steer them back into financial credibility and, um, and uh, and eventually the, the, the finances uh, started to improve and um, you know and they mitigated any any you know much further damage than where they got but it was a it was a difficult time and, and with the salary cap only starting in 1990 you have to think about the pressures that were on the Raiders in that time because you'd already had a pretty solid side and then at that same time as the salary caps coming in you've got Daly Stewart Clyde and Lazarus all coming into the team uh, and not only coming into the team but coming into rep footy and, you know, their trajectories on the way up, uh, not just on the way up, but skyrocketing and their values going up every day. And, you know, clearly that's putting putting pressure on their ability to keep them and pressure on the salary cap. So it was difficult times. And I think the motivation was to keep everyone together, but the execution, um, you know, wasn't that flash. 
can I just ask, like, what was the the vibe about you know other clubs rotting the cap back then? Because as a kid, I remember it. It was it was kind of a big deal, but it was, it was nowhere near as big a deal as the Storm one years later. It was kind of like, oh, of course, Manly's doing it, and of course, you know, so and so is doing it, and that that was that was that was the memory I had of it. Yeah, look, look, and that's part of the, you know, I suppose it's part of all that that grievance story, you know, um, that um, that you guys have been, you know, talking about with, um, you know, with what's, you know, what led to to Super League and, you know, what some of the, you know, the factors were at play, and, um, you know, that was one of the, you know, that was one of the contributing things, I guess, if there was a view that, you know, other that was happening elsewhere and that, you know, Canberra had been been singled out, but that wasn't the only thing, but. Um, it certainly was one of the contributing things. And, you know, it goes back to a, a history there. So I mentioned, you mentioned the 13 import rule before, um, you know, that was a real bugbear for Canberra, you know, like, um, you know, that they were in those early years, you know, were, were quite unhappy about that. And it ceased in 84. So just as they were primed to be more competitive, what happened under the 13 import rule was that um, uh, after three years, your players qualified as a local. And so the third year came in and then they stopped it. And so, Canberra felt they were just going to be more competitive on the on the open market, and they changed the rules. And so, um, you know, the founding father uh, uh, of the Raiders, uh, Les McIntyre, you know, he said it took them back to square the square one. And um, you know, a little bit of history on him is, you know, Les was a life member of the New South Wales League, um, and in 1995, when um, that sixth of February meeting occurred, and um, uh, it looked like. Uh, you know, Kerry Packer revealed what he did about the uh, about TV rights. In some of the comments that were said after that, Ken Arthurson actually called out Les and and uh, and said that you know um, someone like Les, you know, he's going to be loyal. He'll be loyal because he'll return the loyalty that the all the clubs who who voted to admit Canberra into the competition gave them back in the day, and you know, so he he wouldn't turn his back on them. Um, Les. Uh, I don't know if you know, do you guys know much about Les or? Yeah, some, through the course of our research. Yeah. yeah. So so he, he was the mastermind of, of the Queen United Blues, the football club, and also the leagues club. And so, you know, really quickly, he um, he was the first chairman when they set up the Blues in the late 50s. Um, and th- within three years, he had the leagues club uh, set up. And, uh, you know, he was a real master at, at fundraising uh, in his early committee days. But once he took over the club, you know, he, he was very astute in um, – uh, getting the leagues club pumping, and so you know they always had a very good, uh, very good income. Uh, the Blues through that through that leagues club, and uh, you know he, he was a chair, you know, from that time right through to 1990. Both, you know, he was a you know a key man for both the Blues for the uh, for the Raiders um, and um, and the Queensland Leagues Club, um, and so you know it was their you know it was their strength. It was the the Queensland Leagues Club strength in the Blues, which was you know really a cornerstone of that Raiders you know Raiders entry into the Winfield Cup. And um, because those issues have been festering for all those years, the 13 import rule, the salary cap thing happened you're referring to, you know, they felt others were doing the same. Um, and just the general feel that, you know, that, that the league was only looking after Sydney, you know, that, um, you know, Les had said that to me, you know, a number of times that, you know, they just look after Sydney and they'd sort of put up with it. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he'd always pride himself on being a development club, you know, that, you know, players were coming through and he was always cranky that, you know, there were clubs, you know, like in Sydney who weren't doing the development work, who were just buying all their talent. And he said, you know, we need to be rewarded for that. You know, we need to get dispensation. We need to get, um, you know, uh, it recognised when we're bringing players through. And uh, and and he actually went and saw 
And if he went with the, with the, the CEO, Kevin Neal, I'm pretty sure he, uh, they went together to see Quayle and Arthurson before April Fool's Day uh, in 95. And because, you know, Brad Clyde, you know, who's the, who was the real figurehead of, you know, you know, he was the first junior to come through you know, Canberra's minor leagues into the Raiders and to play for Australia. And, um, um, you know, and the Roosters were, you know, working him hard to, you know, to, you know, to lure him on big money. And, uh, and so they went and saw, they, this is what they told me, Les told me that, um, you know, they went to see, uh, yeah, um, Ken and John. Um, so, you know, what can you do to help us? And, um, uh, and they, uh, you know, and Les's claim was they said, we can't do anything, you know, so you're just going to have to, you know, work it out. And, um, you know, that's where, you know, Les was very strong because uh, Ken Arvison actually rang him on April Fool's Eve to sound him out, you know. I mentioned he called him out after the February 6th that Les won't turn his back. Um, and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Les's view was, well, you know, you've got to, you've got to give, give loyalty to get it back. And, uh, you know, so, you know, all of those things sort of, uh, you know, factored into, um, you know, where some of that dissent was. And, and what about you, uh, you know, at, at the newspaper, do you remember some of your early memories of hearing about Super League and, and what the vibe was in the newsroom? Yeah. So, um, I'd taken over the, the main league role in, in 94 and, um, uh, you know, it kept coming up, you know, there'd been, whether it was, you know, the rugby league week story or it was a, you know, piece in the Australian and looking at, and it kept coming up. Um, and so, um, definitely, although, you know, you'd always check your contacts, et cetera. And while, um, you know, the Raiders weren't, you know, saying, you know, too much about it, they are definitely giving me enough steer to say, look, don't, don't rule this out. You know, it's not paper talk. Look at where it is. Look at who's saying the stuff. Um, you know, just you know, be alert. But um, you know, this is not this is not uh, this is not hyperbole. This is you know, there could be something in this. So I was pretty much always of the view that you know, there's some definitely business dealings going on, and you know, it, it could turn into something. And I and I just need to be ready to you know to do my job when that happens. Um, I definitely remember uh, after that Origin series and the Rep Footy in '94 and the players coming back and. You know, they were talking about, um, you know, the, the money. They all swapped stories in camp and the, the money that was going around and some of the rich power brokers behind certain clubs. And, you know, that was always unsettling, you know, for the for the, for the the Raiders back here. They'd come back and, you know, they might get asked to, you know, do a release, you know, release a player or, you know, get pressure on them for an upgrade because, you know, there's there's more there's more money happening uh, elsewhere. And even more unsettling because in 95, you've got 20 teams coming in. Uh, uh, well, sorry, the competition down to 20 teams in 95. So you've got your marquee players at a premium. How are we going to hold on to them in an inflated market? And so, um, you know, like it was definitely a recurring theme. I was on the Kangaroo Tour that year as well. Um, and it was very clear that, you know, that, that something was brewing. Um, but, yeah, I suppose after that uh, early February meeting, it appeared as though it was off. Then Rupert Murdoch said it's only half time. And, you know, then that last day in March, um, uh, last day, March, second last day in March the 30th, uh, yeah, 30th of March when the, that legal action occurred where um, News Limited, you know, called out half a dozen clubs who they were going to challenge, uh, you know, Australian trade um, over over what the uh, what the ARL were doing. Um, so I remember reporting it that night um, and thinking, gee, there's something really, you know, brewing now. I was on a plane the next morning because Canberra were playing in Townsville um, and I actually happened to be staying at the uh, Sheraton Breakwater Casino, mm. um, which uh, just by just by coincidence, uh, where everything went down on that on that Friday night. So, 
I'd heard reports on the late Friday afternoon that um, Sydney Radio was reporting something and I was trying to check it out as things were unfolding, but it definitely was unfolding at the time. And, you know, I wasn't getting much out of the place. We still did a story on it that ran prominently on the, on the Saturday April Fool's Day. But, um, you know, for, back then it was very early deadlines for Saturday papers and it was pretty hard to, um, you know, to wait late in the night to get the latest. So, um, so I pretty much uh, was in the best possible place to sort of work through the night, um, canvas what was happening in the casino, canvas was coming in and out of the foyers. Um, and we had pretty, you know, pretty comprehensive coverage on the, uh, on the Sunday paper because of because um, of where I was that night. It was um, yeah, it was a very yeah, it was yeah, it was very very interesting, unbelievable, and it was um, uh, yeah, just just something that yeah that, that started a whirlwind that yeah I just won't ever forget. I have to say, Steve Walters was there. I remember him being in the casino um, um, uh, at the tables. Um, I bumped into him there. Uh, he wasn't playing that weekend, um, uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't practice for the club to to send injured players away, especially up up to Townsville. So um, it was pretty clear then that something was on, and I think he'd I think he'd dropped the you know 200, 200 bucks you know on one of the one of the games on the tables, but uh, he wasn't too concerned about that because he it said something to me like you know after being up on the 16th floor talking to uh, to to Murdoch, it was just counter change. Um, but yeah, I've actually um, uh, because I didn't want to look like a pest, you know, sort of. You know, with all of you know, there's lots of different faces around the around the place. I had to make it look like that I was gambling. So I actually got a you know bunch of chips so I could sort of move around and you know get some of the info that was uh, that was being traded. And um, I've actually still got one of those fifty dollar chips because in all the helter skelter, um, I didn't get to cash it all back in, or I left one in my pocket. And so <laughs> yeah, to this to this day, yeah, I've got a fifty dollar chip from from uh, yeah from that night when uh, all the players were signed up. That's amazing. Awesome. awesome. Uh, can we just ask you about the kangaroo tour? Yeah, like the '94 the, the tour, the, the last tour, the, and that was the first one that I followed as a teenager, young teenager, and had them all on tape and everything. I always tell the story, and I loved it so much. Uh, like, uh, what was it like being with the with the team? Yeah, it was it was uh, it was really good. Now, I, I sort of I have to I have to confess, um, you know, uh, the paper I was at, and they were very very supportive of me going across. I mean, we had. Was it seven Raiders on that on that um, on that trip? And Sean McRae was the assistant coach, so it was a big representation with you know, uh, you know Mal's captain last tour and uh, you know last game uh, he was going to be playing. Laurie he's pretty much his uh, deputy uh, captain in waiting. Um, so there was, was a, a real reason for us to be there. But I, I wasn't actually staying at the hotel. I was where they were staying. I was pretty much. Um, um, uh, staying with a with a family, boarding with a family, and had a little runabout car, and I was sort of following them all around, doing that, and trying to catch up with their training sessions and wherever they were going. So, um, but you know, they were um, yeah in a pretty pretty convenient location, and uh, it was it was a it was it was brilliant experience. Um, you know, like I'd always wanted to go on a kangaroo tour and to get to go on one of the traditional format and to go to you know Central Park in Wigan and um, you know some of the you know, some of the venues was, was really, really, really good. And the, and the first test in Wembley, um, you know, really set up the tour because, you know, England won that. And, um, um, you know, it was pretty controversial, uh, you know, how they won, but they won it with 12 men. And, uh, and I met that the second and third tests were sold out straight away. So it was a bumper, bumper tour for the, um, for the, for the English Rugby Football League. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was just, a, it was just a fabulous tour. And, uh, Long season, certainly a long season for the players. Um, you know, I think my first story on 
um, on Mal on his farewell circuit that year was you know you know back in January when he um, he got an Australia Day gong, um, and then you know I was still writing about his final test in Beziers in um, in France you know like you know in late November or mid mid to late November <laughs> so um, yeah it was a long year but a, yeah 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 a really really good tour a lot and a yeah a lot of um, yeah a lot of great memories out of that. It has been a better finish to a career. I've never, I've never seen one. I mean, Mal Meninga's career finish was incredible. Well, I, w- I wanted to stay with Mal and um, in a Super League context, look at you know some of the events in '95, the the infamous Cronulla Leagues Club uh, address, followed by the the letter from the Immortals. Uh, were, you, were you in much contact with Mal in the aftermath of that? Not really, because you know by by you know that was in '95. I mean, he'd, he'd sort of finished with the, with the club at that stage. So, um, and he was, yeah, you know, I was, I was still obviously riding at that point, but um, it wasn't a, you know, I suppose we'd, you know, we'd done so much on Mal in 94 um, that it, it wasn't, I mean, he got a, he got a bit of coverage from us, but he wasn't a, you know, the major focus because, you know, you had so much other drama with, you know, just say that, you know, with, you know, what was happening with Laurie and Clyde and, and Ricky and all the others. So, um, so obviously followed that, but um, didn't talk to him much about that. But but I guess you know when I did, and he did get a lot, he did get a fair bit of criticism. Um, was you know the situation for him was that you know I mentioned before that he he spent that entire year with this issue of what's he doing next, what's that going to be, and, and, and I guess for him and it might have come out come out great, but it was sort of the the frustration that you know he wanted to know what he's going to be doing post playing and. He'd finished, and then nothing was coming to a fruition. And uh, I think you know that was the frustration coming out. You know, in his words, which might have been, you know, not not the best articulated words, but I think that's what was coming out. Um, but certainly, you know, for him, um, you know, I don't think there was any any real um, you know lasting backlash uh, in Canberra. Uh, I, I do remember, you know, the following year, I think it was um, when they had a um, a charity fundraising event. And uh, and it was a fashion parade, and uh, they they lured him back to be involved, and uh, it, you know the roof came off when when he when he came down the the, the catwalk, and uh, I remember Laurie saying afterwards, like like doesn't matter, he's still the king, Mal's still the king. <laughs> Love it. And and what about like when you think about like Laurie Daly and Laurie Daly in particular, but Clyde and Stewart as well became in many ways the public faces of Super League from a playing standpoint. Um, Daily in, in the press went from being this kind of affable, everyone loves Laurie, to, you know, like he was coming out with some strong words and, and getting some, you know, some strong words returned back in him. Can you remember that environment and, and what led to that? Yeah, and, you know, I think, it was a, I think it was a bit uncomfortable, you know, for those, you know, you know for all the players because, you know, what they were saying in was something pretty brutal and, you know, um, you know, I've heard in your earlier episodes where, you know, Graham Richardson was talking about how it was just like politics and, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was, you know, propaganda warfare and, um, you know, um, you know, the, the players also, you know, felt strongly about things, you know, like, um, you know, I remember of all things, um, um, you know, uh, Bradley Clyde in at the start of 95 and that's when I think he, he, he pretty much hooked up with uh, uh, George Mimas uh, for his manager because his contract was sort of uh, running out at the end of that year. And I remember him and it was sort of unheard of where um, there was, you know, they had the, the trading cards were, were quite popular then and Clyde was leading the, you know, the discussion on that about them getting a, you know, a decent cut out of that. 
Um, and I sort of hadn't heard much of that sort of talk from, you know, from Brad before. And, you know, part of it was, you know, they, you know, they were, they were looking to get, you know, a better deal. Um, they were looking to get better conditions and, you know, and they, they thought that's what, you know, that was, that's what they'd be getting. But, you know, like it was a real jump from them where, you know, there'd been adulation for them, um, you know, uh, where they were everyone's favourite or second favourite team. And then suddenly they were in this war where people had these very strong views. And, you know, like I remember, uh, you know, one of the games at, um, at, uh, at Cogra um, where um, that was the, the day when I think uh, Johnny Lomax and Quentin Pongy both got sent off. And, you know, it can be a pretty, um, uh, pretty hostile environment, Cogra. And they were, you know, they were pretty full on there. And you know, I think on that day they had some bottles thrown at them or at least one bottle thrown at them. And, it, you know, it shook them up, you know, like they were, you know, they were, you know, used to, uh, you know, being pretty, pretty popular, and uh, then suddenly you know, they were under pressure because they were at the, you know, they were the faces of this thing, and um, uh, you know, it was pretty hard for them. You know, like you didn't see, you know, Laurie get cranky very often. Um, um, you know, one of the one of the times, and I digress a little bit here, but one of the times where you know I did see him uh, get upset once um, uh, was related to his injury situation. It was in it was in '94, and. Um, uh, I think there might have been a letter to the editor and a bit of criticism that he was, um, you know, he was playing, he's playing the rep footy and then he was out injured for the for the Raiders and it was after the test against France in '94 at Parramatta Stadium, which they won well. I think he was man of the match on one leg. I was there. You were there. Fifty-eight mm, nil. That's the one. That's the one. Well, he went in. He went in for uh, for for knee surgery um, after that, and um, on that year. I don't know if you remember, there was a show on ABC Live and Sweaty. Mm. Andrew Denton might, might have been early, and Elle McFeast did the interviews. And um, Elle McFeast did this interview with um, uh, with Laurie, and you know it's, it was a lighthearted format, and he and he and he took it in a lighthearted way. Was where she said to him, oh, you know, is it true they call you tampon?" And he said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, you're in for one week and then for out for a few." <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, he, 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 and so 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 park that for a moment. Um, he played through the you know, played through the rep games, went and had his knee cleaned up, and then pretty pretty soon after the surgery, it wasn't long after, he came back and was a full press conference in uh, at Canberra, and um, he was you know talking about how it went and what he wanted to do, and you know like he, he got a bit of criticism, and uh, um, it just wasn't the time. But one of the local journos decided to replay the old tampon line at him, and uh, um, uh, just you know, say it wasn't the time, and and you know like he it, it wasn't a it wasn't a Ricky Cranky, but uh, but he he snapped back and said he he snapped back and said who calls me that mate, and uh, and uh, the the journal got a bit tongue tied because he realised that had gone down like a lead balloon, and um, uh, and he didn't go there again. And yeah, that's one of the times that I saw yeah Laurie quite upset. But um, um, but yeah, the, the 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 Super League stuff really did did test them because they were the face, and um, you know there were a lot of things they encountered with the public that they hadn't before, and. Um, yeah, it was, it was a real, it was a real test of their resilience. Um, uh, but for him, you know, like, you know, that period, you know, was, uh, you know, Laurie was, you know, in super form over those few years, you know, like, um, you know, 94, he came back, um, uh, from that knee surgery, made sure he came back for Mal's final game at, at Bruce stadium, uh, came off the bench. Um, and he, um, uh, and he was so important to that, to that Raiders side, um, uh, even though they got through those games without him, that was one of the challenges Tim Sheens had set them during the year to be able to win without key players. And they, you know, they beat Newcastle, you know, racked up fifty and Cronulla by fifty with Croker at five eight without Daly. Uh, but he came back from Mouse Farewell and he was just so important to that team and they went home to the to the grand final as you as you saw 
Um, yeah, and uh, and then you know, like he was, you know, ninety five, ninety six. Um, you know, his form, despite all that, um, you know, was still just absolute top shelf. And um, you know, that ninety six team from Canberra, um, they they got they got tipped out of the finals by St George, who obviously went on to the grand final in ninety six. But they had, you know, they had quite a few, they had a lot of injuries that year. And they got beat by two in the semi by the team which got to the grand final. And, you know, they were without, you know, I think Stuart, Clyde, um, Wiki perhaps, um, and Croker uh, from memory. They had, you know, like a three or four really good players out, you know, who, who would have been more than two points, you would have thought. Um, you know, they, so they, and Laurie, you know, Laurie had a, you know, had a, had a big period. And just despite, you know, all of those distractions and all the pressure, um, he was still playing very, very good football. It's it's a shame that like every era was hampered by injuries to one of the other big three, you know, 91 with Stewart's groin and Clyde you know, perpetually injured after the season because he's played so hard and then Laurie in the earlier years. And then, you know, if they ever had them all together for an extended period, it could have been a proper dynasty. It could have looked, and if you had said to me, Andy, in 94, that that's going to be, you know, the last grand final for, you know, 25, 26 years, you know, I would have said, you're going to have your head wrecked, you know, like um, even 95. And this is still a, this is still a, a bit of a, a quirk for me is that, you know, in 95, they lost two games all year and they finished second and they got a stiff deal in the semis, you know, like granted, you know, uh, the Bulldogs were, were too strong in the preliminary final, but, you know, they lost two games all year and the first semi-final game they had to go play was at Suncorp uh, against the third place Broncos. Now, uh, I think what had happened that, you know, there'd been pressure from Brisbane, give us a final, give us a final, and they just gave them a designated final day. And, uh, and it mm. just turns out yeah. that yeah, it's, you know, Canberra against Brisbane. And it was an awesome game. Like it was a Raiders one, it was, you know, it was a try in it. Um, thereabouts, it was 14 8 or, or there at the score, I think. And, um, you know, every, they all said it was state of origin intensity. And, you know, and neither side went on, you know, like, you know, Brisbane went out the back door afterwards and, uh, and, and Canberra, you know, uh, went out the back door as well. And uh, it, it, it took a lot out of them. But, you know, for me, you know, when you're talking about, you know, where your window's there, you know, 93, you know, they were they were going pretty well. And then Ricky had his injury. 94, you know, you had all your key players fit and firing into the year and they were just way too good. 95, just sniffing that finals where, you know, you beat Brisbane away when you finish second. Your next game's at the footy, at, um, at the footy stadium. And um, you're playing the Bulldogs and, uh, you know, they're flat and probably the worst they've played in a few years. Um, and, uh, and then they're out, you know, like uh, that, that team there, how well, how well they played that year. I reckon, you know, I reckon they deserved at least a shot at the grand final. I think they were, you know, they were hard done by, by the, um, the, the finals format of that year. That, mm. that team is probably the all-time example of just how hard it is to win comps. But I want to I want to move on to to beyond uh, the Canberra Times and, and you taking the role as as Raiders media manager. How did that come about? Yeah, uh, well, I've actually, you know, because I've been doing things since I was and, and doing the, the media type stuff, even though it was sort of like a hobby and a stringer for you know from my high school years. But you know, I've sort of been doing the same thing for you know ten years or so, really. And um, you know, I, I've been on the on the Roo tour and sort of you know made some friendships there and. Um, uh, Danny Lane was one of the uh, the journos on the tour uh, who was at Rugby League Week at the time and uh, he facilitated a, a bit of a chat with, uh, with Norm Tasker and just before all the, you know, everything, World War, the, the war broke out um, in 95, um, I was talking to him about actually going to Sydney and, and working for, for League Week. So I was sort of open to a bit of a change and then, you know, 
the the war happened and you know rugby league week um sort of you know took a big hit out of that and I, th- I don't think it ever really recovered I've got to say and so our conversations sort of you know just got overtaken by by those events so you know I was just at a, at a, at a point where you know do I just keep you know cheering it out here or do I you know broaden my experience and so um yeah I got a um uh, you know as part of you know what their plans were for Super League was was to try and you know professionalize the the um you know all aspects of the administration and their uh, and their public relations and uh, and so they uh, all of the clubs who were aligned super league um put on uh put on media managers and so um i was i was approached to see uh, by kevin neal to, to um to take that role for the raiders and um you know that uh, that you know juncture of my career i was certainly open to that um you know i knew with what was being lined up for, for Super League, no matter how it went, um, that there was going to be some interesting people that I, I'd come into contact with, and some uh, expertise and you know professionals that I would uh, I would get to meet and, and learn off. And so I thought, look, this is a once in a lifetime um, that I should probably do that. And it's going to be beneficial for me whichever way it went. And uh, um, you know, I did it for a couple of years, and uh, and I definitely you know say that it was it was uh, yeah really really interesting time, and I, and I learned heaps. It was an interesting strategy yeah, by by News Limited, you know. So there was you at the Raiders, Debbie Spillane at the Dogs, Neil Cadigan at the Mariners. Probably, probably more I'm forgetting, but they they were definitely you know going for some heavy hitters. So it was something they obviously thought like took very seriously. Yeah, and they had a you know like it was um, Trevor McEwen was. Uh, was was involved from the Super League head office point of view, and Rebecca Wilson. Um, they were the two that. Um, you know, we dealt with a lot and they, you know, like, and, you know, yeah, we, we sort of, yeah, we worked a lot together as, um, uh, you know, in a collegiate way, um, you know, they were regularly having hookups, you know, uh, between all of the officers, uh, the media officers about, you know, some of the things we could do and how we can improve things. And um, so, yeah, that, there was definitely a, uh, yeah, a will to make it better. And there's definitely a cooperative spirit. I, I really felt because uh, with, um, with Caddo, you know, I think he was, yeah, doing a bit of the media, a bit of the marketing, and, and Michael Hagan was doing a bit of the media for the hunter for the hunter. And I, uh, I, I'll never forget. I felt so bad. The um, uh, when the Raiders went up there to play in '97, there was a mix-up. I think with the travel arrangements, and they didn't. Uh, our, our guys who were supposed to be at the press conference did, were late, uh, and so you know, with um, you know, with with you know, Mal being the coach and you know, the heavy hitters that they'd worked pretty hard to get a to get a media contingent there and um yeah there'd been a mix up with the arrival times and uh and they were they were late getting there and I took a few phone calls from from the Mariners guys were saying what's doing and yeah I really felt for them because you know Andy knows especially what it was like in the town and they were yeah under immense pressure and that sort of didn't help them but um but I have to say that um uh you know that aside, you know, everyone worked together really strongly and uh yeah we you know we we supported each other and um, as I said, you know, work collaborating on, on a lot of things. Well, mate, I'm interested, like, as a guy at the coalface, uh, you know, in this new era of professionalism, in inverted commas, we hear so much about, like, you know, that we want to take the game forward when they go to China, blah, blah, blah. But, like, did you notice a big jump in professionalism? Uh, what, on the on the playing side, you mean? Or the... No, 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 I'm talking about from the, from the administration side. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, yeah, I think so. Look, um there was definitely a will to make it work, you know? So, um, you know, and there was a lot of noise, um, you know, and you're in, in this, you know, there was this propaganda battle going on. And when you're in the one team towns, you know, you're just trying to support your team as well. You're trying to support the club you work for to get people through the gate, to engage your, engage your fans, to, 
you know, give the players the support they need to, you know, um, you know, perform at their best. And um, so, you know, I think there, there might have been a little bit of a difference between, you know, some of the, the one-team towns and, you know, so Canterbury, for example, you know, when you, you've got all, all the clubs in the one city. Um, but, yeah, look, there was definitely an effort to do it, you know, like some of the things, you know, um, might have been, you know, misguided at times. Um, but, you know, it was all about trying to do it better and, and trying to, to give better exposure and using uh, and partnering with the media better, um, you know, to give, um, you know, to give the players a profile and the game a profile. But, you know, it was just pretty hard to, it was pretty hard to do that when, um, um, you know, you're, you're just in this, uh, you know, constant day-to-day trench warfare, you know, and, um, um, you know, and when you're in our, in our place, um, you know, the, the Raiders had a pretty, pretty, once we got to the Super League year and, you know, like, and there's no doubt, you know, you got you can have your opinions on the advertising and whatever else, but there was definitely, you know, a bigger effort to use marketing. You know, like I remember we were lining up players to to do to do stuff on um, with Sony on Sega games and things like that, and do reviews and to try and get to a new audience and get the players connecting with the kids that way. And you know, mm-hmm. there was lots more little marketing things that were opening up to to cross promote and things like that. And so I could definitely see some you know uh, some good advancements there. But you know, D- Donny Ferner Jr., who's the CEO at Raiders now, and he started uh, at the Raiders in the, in the same year, um, in '96, and he was looking after corporate sales. And you know, he, um, uh, you know, he, he's he's one of the good guys, and uh, has done a, you know a lot of hard yards there. And you know, he he always he always says now even that the um, that that you know unless you're winning, you know, the best marketing in the world, unless you're winning, uh, you know, all your plans are out the window. You know, you've got to have you know, you've got to have a team that's consistently performing. And, um, you know, that start of that Super League season, you know, the Raiders were heading for four straight. You know, they won one game in their first six. And, uh, and I remember, um, you know, uh, there was a bit of a call to arms with the, with the you know, with the admin staff for that, uh, when, the, when the Mariners came to down for that fourth game and they were staring down the barrel at four losses in a row. And um, it was about, we need a crowd, you know, like the, we just, you know, we need to do everything we can to, to up the morale of the team and, um, we need a crowd, you know, like if there's no one here, that's just, you know, that's a risk for us. We need a crowd. And so we just had to go to work. How are we going to get some people through? And we, we, you know, we went to the schools and did a lot of work with the schools to try and entice people along. There was a few, few freebies in there as well, um, you know, to encourage people to come along. And uh, yeah, they, got, they got about 15,000 to that game and the, the Raiders got home. That was their first win under, under Mal. But, um, you know, like that was the, um, you know, one, it comes down to, to winning and that sort of released the pressure valve a bit, but it was, um, you know, it was, a, you know, it was, it was definitely expected of the, you know, this is where the, the admin team has to come in to at least play a role this, this week to um, help try and get a, cow, a crowd to boost morale and try and get the best performance out of the team because they, they really needed one. Well, 15,000 for the Mariners is amazing. It's pretty hard to say, come and see John Carlo. It's like, you know. Yeah, well, look, and that's the thing. That's one of the things that Donnie, he called it pretty early, I've got to say. He called it very early. In '97, you know, um, because you know, '96, they, you know, yeah, it was there was still the one competition until the, the court results came through, and he, you know, like he he definitely called it early because he's the one who was dealing with the you know potential sponsors and current sponsors, and you know, and he sort of got the got the litmus test, and he said, look, people don't care about these about these other teams; they want us to be playing Parramatta and St George and beating them. They, you know, these these other new teams, it's just not it's not the thing, and. Um, uh, you know, it's going to be a long year. Um, uh, we've got to get, you know, we've got to get back together. And, um, you know, and it was, it was, I don't think anyone ever, ever, you know, really thought that, um, 
you know, it could possibly get to, you know, as bad as it did um, and that, you know, that common sense would prevail. But, you know, in the best of propaganda, what they say in World War One, you know, we'll be home by Christmas and it was never going to happen, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so, um, you know, if history shows you whether it was World Series cricket or what happened in gridiron in the, in the States, you know, those, um, you know, those, um, you know, battle for the hearts and minds in multiple competitions, um, you know, they, you know, they took time to sort out and, uh, um, you know, everyone realised pretty quick that, you know, there were some winners here, but um, it's, the, the game's not winning and, um, you know, we've got to move and get out of this somehow. And so, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, to be in it, it was, um, you know, like it was a very challenging time. Has it, you know, crazy year for all the reasons you mentioned, you know, just heading into, you know, the end of the season, you lost the, the final to Cronulla to get knocked out. At that point, did it did it feel any different? Did it feel just like, you, you know, a normal season or was there something noticeably different about it? Yeah, it was. And I, and I suppose, um, you know, one of the things was is that um, we had the World Club Challenge in there as well, which was a, which was very different. Um, I, do, I do remember, you know, when I was at the paper, when I was writing the paper, you know, the, the, the editors and things and giving you feedback and whatever, you know, would sometimes say to me, you can be a bit more cheeky, you can be a bit more parochial, you know, like, so, you know, still be fair, but, you know, you can sort of play it up a bit, you know, there's permission to do that. Um, uh, but sort of when this happened, that you know, when Super League happened and where sentiment was, you know, the, the tide turned a bit, you know, and I remember, you know, before that Cronulla game, um, you know, there was a bit of, you know, chat with the paper about what would happen with the, you know, the, the t-shirts, grand final t-shirts, if we get in and how that, how's that going to play? And, um, uh, and then I was in the group that sort of came up with the, you know, what we said the, um, uh, what the slogan would be, you know, just playing on a, on a current song or, well, a reasonably recent song of the time of the nineties. And the popular one was, uh, we were going to have on the shirts smells like green spirit. <laughs> Great. Uh, but we got panned, we got panned on the front page of the camp times for that, you know, so and that was sort of a, um, you know, and it was said, geez, if we win, the shirts aren't going to go any good based on that. But, you know, they sort of took apart the lyrics and didn't take it on, you know, what it was meant to be, a play on the words of a, you know, a pop culture song, a very, you know, a very, um, you know, popular song of the, of the era. Um, you know, they sort of went into all the, you know, the meaning behind it and, you know, that it's all misguided. So it was pretty hard to crack a win, you know. Um, but but that that uh, World Club Challenge, you know, that was, a, that was sort of a, that was, it was a two-edged sword there, but it actually it ended up being a bit of a springboard for Canberra because when we when we went over uh, for that, you know, because uh, the Raiders won the first three games convincingly here, got to the um, uh, the, the three away games. The first game that we had was against the London Broncos at the Stoop, which is near Twickenham, right in that Twickenham precinct. And um, uh, it, was a, it was a Monday night, and uh, I was already at the ground, but. The bus coming from where the where the team was staying, which should have been no more than probably half hour drive, if that, um, there was a big traffic jam, and um, uh, there was a question mark whether are they going to get here? Are they going to get here for the game? And so they were getting, you know, stripped down in the bus and whatever else, and they got there in a nick of time uh, for the game. But even though it was a pretty, you know, the London Broncos side, I think Terry Madison was in it, Peter Gill, Greg Barwick. who else was in the team? Oh, Russell Borden and Tony Martin who went on to play for the Storm. So it was, you know mixture of journeymen and up-and-comers and, you know, on paper, you know, Raiders should have should have won, um, but they got mugged that night and uh, that was their World Club Challenge over because the Aussie teams weren't dropping games and uh, you drop a game, you're, you're out of contention. So, you know, like it was a really, um, really difficult, you know, thing for them to bounce back from. It's like, you know, what are we doing here now? Um, and so, you know, I was really impressed with how they, they sort of knuckled down then. How do we regroup? 
Um, and so they did. They beat Halifax in the next one. And then they actually had a bit of a bit of a bonding session with the Australian cricket team because they were staying at the same hotel, the Holiday Inn at Leeds, um, where the 94 Kangaroos stayed as well. And that's where the Australian cricket team was staying, staying for the test match. And they went to the game uh, for the final day, which where the Aussies uh, wrapped up the ashes or secured the ashes. And because um, uh, they were staying at the same place, you know, they invited me to the change rooms and they came back and the, the after party was sort of uh, at the hotel and um, they had a, it's actually mentioned in Steve War's uh, tour, tour diary from that uh, Asher series about the night they had with, um, or the, yeah, the day and night they had with the, with the Raiders guys and um, uh, he reflects on and I actually saw this happen it was uh, uh, Steve War, I think his, bro, his twin brother, um, definitely Michael Kasperowicz and maybe Brendan Julian decided they, they wanted to tackle Mal. They said, yeah, come on, you want you to run on this. <laughs> So they they threw him a uh, Foster's can and uh, and he said okay and so they cleared a few things and he had a bit of a run at him and they just skittled like nine things <laughs> and um, uh, that made Steve Wars book and so um, you know that was a, a buzz for you know both the teams and um, and then they said about the next week and they they went to Wigan to play Wigan at Central Park and you know scored fifty points on them there and they had a, they had an okay side Gary Connolly and Andy Farrell. Um, and, you know, they were one of the English sides to make the finals, you know, and um, Canberra put 50 on them twice in the series. Um, you know, Canterbury, they'd beaten Canterbury twice, um, and when they played the Broncos, you won the whole thing. The, the Bronx might have got 30 on them, but certainly not 50 like the Raiders did twice. So that was a bit of a springboard for when they came back and they had a good, a good run into the finals, and they made a bit of a charge again. You know, some injuries got them a bit, um, you know, in that final series, um, but, you know, they went pretty close. But, uh, you know, I was impressed with, you know, from a real low, you know, going down to the Broncos to how they regrouped, got their got their mojo back and, and made a bit of a run at things. And it was, uh, um, yeah, it was a real, yeah, a real good life lesson there about, you know, do you kick stones or, you know, how do we actually, um, you know, get morale in the place back and, uh, and have a red hot crack and they did it. That's a great story about the London Broncos, man. Like Peter Gill was uh, so underrated as the heart and soul of that, of that club in that era. Gun. Um, this, this yeah. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. We could probably go for another couple of hours on, on Raiders history, but uh, we do need to finish up. So I just wanted to bring it back full circle. And, you know, after a long period in the wilderness, the, the Raiders are finally back as a, as a force and a, a team that, once again, kind of the nation's second team. Uh, can you talk about the current crop and, and what you think about the team today and the, this appetite for the team in the town compared to the glory years? Yeah, it's come a long way, and you know, I'd say, you know, it's uh, you know they're really well embraced now. Like you know, there was no doubt a period where you know they lost a bit of connection there, um, and you know the recent years and look and the effort they've gone to make, you know, the experience at, at the home games as well, uh, you know, something that's you know that, that people want to be part of the you know the Viking clap, the blowing of the horn, um, but just you know the culture in the place, um, you know how they conduct themselves, the way they've connected with the community, you know, like there's a, you know, there's been a real effort there, you know, there's a real, um, you know, uh, pride in the history of the club, um, you know, and it's a, you can really tell it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good bunch of people and a good team that, um, that Ricky's assembled there. And, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, the, the supporter base is really strong. They're really liked around town. You know, the roster's good. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, what they've done, uh, you know, people want to be part of it again. Um, you know, and I saw Donnie at the start of the year. I bumped into him and Donnie Ferner and Junior. And, um, you know, 
like just things were on, you know, on such a wave at the end of last year. And, you know, like in, was, he's been there, you know, since, since 96 and it's been a hard row for, hard, uh, uh, yeah, hard hoe for him, hard road to hoe. Cause um, you know, like it has been such a, you know, a long time since they've been back contending and, you know, like just as, you know, every time uh, they look like doing something really good, something comes up, you know, um, you know, to, to, to give it, to present a challenge or to make, make it difficult for them. And, um, you know, and, and this year, 2020, you know, like they were really excited about the depth of their, of the club and the, um, uh, you know, the underpinning junior side they've got, um, you know, to the first grade team. They, they were really steel for a, for a big year. And, um, you know, they had a great year, but, you know, like the wind was out of the sails a bit, you know, because of, you know, what we've all had to put up with this year. And, um, yeah, so, you know, so that was a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a hitch really. But I, I think, you know, based on what they did this year, um, you know, against those odds, um, you know, I reckon they'll be prepared well for next year. Um, and, uh, you know, it won't be too long uh, before, yeah, before we have them having another grand final. And, uh, um, you know, I can't wait to see that day when, when they do raise that, that uh, premiership trophy again. Well, Bevan, like, I think Ricky needs to be singled out for his outside-the-box thinking. First of all, he's my favourite player of all time, so I'm biased, but he revolutionises the game with kicking and passing as a player. Then he couldn't get some free agents to Canberra, so he just goes to England and, and just, just pillages the best talent ever. Uh, I think without that uh, aspect of it, I think we're still struggling. Yeah, and look, and they had to do something, and, you know, like, and I, and I think, you know, sometimes pressure and events mean you, you do have to do something and, and they were going the traditional route trying to recruit players here and it wasn't working so they had, they had to had to find another way and uh you know yeah full marks for you know for what they've done and the you know like Elliot Wyde what a recruit he's been what he's given and all the positions he's played and you know yeah. just, a, just a real footballer the, the halfback now George Williams you know like um you know if he had been there last year I reckon they win the grand final last year if, he, if he's there in, yep. in 2019 um they've uh you know yeah they've um They've done really well, and and to see you know, Jack White and come on like he has, uh, you know Josh Papali's just just immense, uh, means so much to that club. Um, yeah, I just think they've got a great spirit, and uh, you know they've done really well. I'm looking forward to seeing how this new recruit goes that they're bringing, bringing out the back rower uh, who's coming out as well uh, to, to add to that contingent. But um, yeah, no, it's been it's been shrewd, um, and uh, you know and they've executed it well. But the thing is that you know they've bonded so well together, and uh, um, yeah, no, I think there's. Uh, I definitely, I definitely think that their, you know, their premiership window is still alive and well, and certainly not closed. Well, uh, it might be hard for you to answer this one, but if you had to pick as a lifelong Raiders fan, if you had to pick one, your all-time favourite Raider. Yeah, it's really hard, mate. That's really hard. Um, it, it's look, it, it's hard to, you know, when you look look at things through through kids' eyes, you know, like probably, you know, when I was a kid, is probably you know what you know what sticks out to me and. Um, they're going to say, what are you saying here? But um, um, I always loved Jay Hoffman, um, father of Ryan Hoffman. Awesome. Yeah. He, um, you know, he just, he just typified, you know, what they did in, in building the club. Um, you know, yeah, he just, uh, he just toiled and toiled and gave them great service and was a you know, really good, good club man. And um, yeah, he, he, uh, you know, didn't have the, the, um, yeah, all the, um, the razzle dazzle of uh, as many of the other players that have uh, that have come through, but um, yeah, I just always connected with him as a kid, and um, yeah, really respected what he did to you know to build the foundations because what those what those what those men and, and young fellas did in those in those early days did 
did set things up for um, you know for what's what's brought so much joy to a lot of people. And um, uh, yeah, he, he he was my hero then, and uh, and it's pretty hard uh, yeah to eclipse what what he did. I love that answer because up here in Newcastle, you, you talk about David Mullane and Paul Marquette and these sort of guys from the early Knights teams up here, and people still love them the same way you love Jay Hoffman. It's like the guys that are standing on the shoulder of giants, as they say, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, you know, like you know, all clubs, you know, have those people, and um, you know, and it's sort of why you know, it's why you know, the likes of Craig Bellamy's been such a success. You know, like he um. The attitude that uh, that he had and my dealings with him, whether he was a player or a coach or as a workmate, you know, he was just, you know, just always, um, yeah, just always transparent. Um, you knew where you stood with him, uh, and he just he just gave one hundred fifty percent, and um, uh, yeah, just um, you know, really, really good human beings, and you know, like it, it doesn't. I don't know if anyone knew how good Belly Ake was going to be as a coach, but. Um, I tell you what, you don't begrudge what he's done. He's uh, he's he's been fantastic, and uh, um, you know, especially when he's been, you know, he's been involved in you know top class footy for for many, many, many years now. It's going back to the '82. Um, it's 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 quite a record that he's um, that he's returned. Well, Bevan, I'll, I'll I'll leave you and Andy to go on for another three hours off air with uh, some Raiders talk. We'll end it here. Uh, so we'll we'll just say <laughs> up the milk. Um, this, this was fantastic, incredible insight. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me, fellas. I've uh, yeah, really enjoyed it and keep up the great work with the uh, with the show. It's uh, it's a beauty. Oh, thanks, mate. Thank you, mate. Bevan Hannon, thank you again. Cheers, guys. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.